Section 14 of Short Stories from Locomotive Engineers Journal, Volume 52. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Short Stories from Locomotive Engineers Journal, Volume 52, by Various. Section 14. A Marine Chase by Warren Miller. The most interesting chase I ever had in all my experience as a detective officer was for Simpson who had robbed the National Bank of $50,000 in currency. Simpson was located in New York by the police, or was supposed to be, and his problem was to get out of the city with the plunder. The problem of the police was to arrest him with the funds on him. My being called into the case arose from certain information that came from Philadelphia. The chief of police of that city gave out information that a small steamer, no bigger than a canal boat, that had been laid up for some time, had been purchased and was being put into commission. The owner could give no satisfactory account of the sale or who was the real purchaser. Indeed, they had become suspicious of the use to which she was to be put and had advised the police to be on the lookout. The way we got on to Simpson's connection with the steamer was this. An anonymous letter was received at police headquarters which stated that he had chartered a single sticker at New London and was intending to make for Canada in her. Had we not heard of the Philadelphia matter, we would have been on the lookout in the direction of New London. As it was, we inferred that Simpson had written the anonymous letter to put us off the track. But if this were so, he had not counted on our being in a position to put these two bits of information together. As soon as I arrived at Philadelphia, I went to the dock where the suspect was lying. Without appearing to be interested in her, I made a mental note of everything in her outward makeup. She was evidently such a boat as is used for carrying passengers short distances between a city and its outlying towns. She had a single stack, was moved by a propeller, and was painted white. The name on her stern was Peter Muller. There were no signs of her leaving port, and I got the idea I was off the track. I employed a man to watch the boat and made a visit to the police department, hoping to get some more information concerning her. They told me they thought they had traced the new ownership of the Muller, and it was all right. Had it not been for this information, I would have watched the boat myself or at least taken better measures to keep advised of her movements. As it was, I went to my hotel and to bed early, being tired. I was awakened at three o'clock in the morning by a bellboy, who ushered into my room the man I had placed on watch. He told me that he had gone to sleep about midnight and was awakened by a puffing. Opening his eyes, he saw the muller going out. I chartered a tug, and, having received information that my quarry after making the ocean had gone northward, I followed in hot haste. The muller must have had good motive power— for despite the fact that we put on all steam, she kept ahead of us. We saw nothing of her, but upon inquiry learned that she was several hours ahead of us, making northward. Before leaving Philadelphia, I had telephoned the New York Police Department of what had taken place, but whether or not they took steps to head off the fugitive, nothing came of my notification. I kept on, guided by inquiry alone all day, but all day gaining on the muller. When night came on, I felt that temporarily, at least, I had lost her, for at night she could go where she pleased, without her movements being noted. 
However, I reason that the Muller would not know that she was being chased and would therefore not be likely to attempt to throw me off her track. At any rate, I determined to put into the first available port and try to pick up information of the fugitive the next day. This I did, and in the morning started again northward, making inquiries along the way. About noon, I got the first information. The Muller had been seen about five hours ahead of me, still pointing northward. In this way, I followed the fugitive for several days. The last I heard of her was off Cape Cod. She was then pointing for Portland. I now saw her object. She would make for Casco Bay, in which there are several hundred islands, among which she would have an excellent opportunity to lose herself. There would be both advantage and disadvantage in this to me. I would have her cooped within a limited area, for she could not go on with safety northward, there being no harbor between Maine and the St. Lawrence River. But to find her among the islands of Casco Bay would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. At the same time, I might hunt her down by the same process of inquiry I had already pursued. I made Portsmouth, where I learned that the Muller had been there. A man had come ashore to buy provisions, answering to a description of Simpson. It was evident from this that he did not suppose he was followed, or he would not have taken the risk of going ashore unless disguised. This theory turned out to be wrong, as will appear later. I looked for a week among the islands of Casco Bay for the Muller without getting any trace of her whatever. Then one morning, when I went up from below, I saw a boat anchored in a cove that answered to her except that the latter was a lead color, while the Muller was white. It happened that we had, for two days, had one of those fogs that flowed in from the ocean in that region. This put me on to a train of thought. My father had been in the volunteer navy during the war between the states, and he had told me that ships attempting to run the blockade of the Confederate ports were painted a light gray. This being the color best adapted to concealment, especially in the gray of the morning. This, together with the resemblance in all except color between the Muller and this boat I was looking at, suggested to me that the fugitive had been repainted. During a two days fog, there had been ample opportunity to do this. I at once ran over every point. I had noted when the Muller was lying at Philadelphia, and this gray boat before me corresponded with her in every particular. I at once gave orders to steam for her. We were lying at anchor at the time, and the fires were banked. Before we could get the anchor up and sufficient steam on, the gray boat got off and disappeared around a point of the island. She had evidently been waiting for the return of a boat that had gone ashore and started without any appearance of haste as soon as it reached her. I did not believe, if she were the Muller, that she suspected we were after her. In order that she might not know that we were, I avoided all appearance of haste, though I was immensely impatient. When we finally got off, I purposely went around the island on the other side from the suspect. When we next saw her, she was steaming along deliberately. Looking eastward, I saw a low bank of fog on the horizon and feared that we would be caught in it before reaching the suspect. I ordered on full steam, but the fog bank rose rapidly, and we were soon enveloped in it. That was the last glimpse we got of the gray boat for another week, when in passing a narrow inlet in the mainland I saw her at the further end, partly concealed by overhanging trees. I had once ordered our course altered, and we entered the cove. I now felt easy— for she could not get out of the inlet without our intercepting her. As we sailed on, drawing closer, I noticed that she was lying at anchor, but no one was on deck. No move was made to get away from us, and when we drew up within a cable's length of her, 
we saw plainly that no one was aboard of her. I got into a small boat, was pulled alongside of her, and got aboard. Every entrance to her cabin was locked. There was reason to believe that those who were cruising in her had gone ashore and had left her under lock and key to avoid losing what she contained. On pulling toward her, I had noticed the name on her stern. It was the Seminole of Jacksonville, Florida. My suspicions of her were lulled by this, till I remembered that no such small craft from Florida would be likely to make its way up to Maine, besides the letters had been evidently fresh painted. I felt such confidence in her being the vessel I was looking for that I sent to my tug for implements, broke open the doors to the companionway, and went below. Everything indicated that the crew had gone ashore. There was no steam on, indeed, no fires in the furnaces. I searched her for evidence as to what she was or to whom she belonged, but could find not a scrap of anything to give the information. I was reluctantly forced to the conclusion that she belonged to a party who were cruising for pleasure, so I fixed up the door as well as I could and got back to my tug. The captain, after hearing what I had to say about the matter, said that he would go aboard the Seminole and have a look for himself. I concluded to go back with him. Having obtained access to the cabin, he led the way straight to the furnace and opened the door. All was dark within the firebox. The captain scratched a match and held it inside the box. Then he took out a package. I snatched it from him, unrolled it, and exposed a large package of bank bills. On being counted, they turned out to be the amount I was after, lacking about $2,500, which had evidently been paid for the boat and other expenses. I asked the captain how he had come to suspect that the money had been hidden in the firebox, and he said that when an examination had been made of the interned German liners at Hoboken, at the time the break was made between the United States and Germany, he had been on hand and seen pieces of the machinery of one of the vessels taken from an unused furnace. The rest of the story remained for some time a mystery. Then one of the Simpsons crew, who at the time did not know what he was hired for, revealed the facts. Simpson got word of the fact that we were inquiring for him and during the two days fog repainted his boat and changed her name. Being caught in the cove, he had little time for deliberation. He resolved to make the pretense that had deceived me, trusting his plunder to the firebox rather than taking it with him. There was nothing for him to do after we found the plunder but to make off without it and save himself a term in state prison. End of section 14. Recording by Stephen Kinford, Sharon Township, Ohio, Amateur Radio Call Sign N8WB.